Hey everybody, it's us, Josh and Chuck, and we want you to know we are coming somewhere near you, we're sure, if you live in North America this year. That's right, we're going on tour, and uh, why don't we just rattle through these dates? Okay. Uh, Toronto, August 8th at the Danforth Music Hall. Chicago, August 9th, the next day at Harris Theater. Then we are taking some time off to recover after that two-day grind. <laughs> we're hitting Vancouver, the Vogue Theater, September 26th, followed by... Minneapolis, we're going to be at the Pantages Theater again on September 27th. That is correct. Yep, and then Austin Chuck on October 10th at the Paramount Theater. Yes, and very special show in Lawrence, Kansas at Liberty Hall on October 11th. Yep, and then we're going to do a three-night stand October 22nd, 23rd, and 24th at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York, and then Chuck, take it home. Uh, well, take it home literally because we are finishing up November 4th right here in Atlanta at the Buckhead Theater, and this is a very special benefit show. Uh, and all the proceeds will be going to Lifeline Animal Project of Atlanta and the National Down Syndrome Society. Yep, and for more information and to buy tickets, just go to SYSKLive.com. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Josh Clark, and I'm proud to introduce... My partner, co-host in crime, one of those two, <laughs> Mr. Charles W. Chuck Wayne, Chuck Tran Bryant. Chuck and, Tran. Yep. And uh, this week, Chuck, we have a very special guest producer filling out the seat. That's right. It is the rump of Noel Brown. Yeah, Jerry's. She's at the beach because she needs a vacation. Uh, uh, I'm getting <laughs> pale, guys. <laughs> Yeah, Jerry's romping at the beach with her wife and her daughter and a bunch of friends. And, you know, I think that sounds lovely. Well, yeah, the beach rocks. I'm going to Who the beach doesn't in like the September. beach, you know? Even Miley Cyrus likes the beach now. I don't get it. She's got this new single out about how her boyfriend introduced her to the beach. It's a pretty sweet song, actually. You know this stuff? I just... I, I, my, my wife oh, okay. introduces me to things sometimes right, that I acceptable. otherwise would never, ever have come across. Like and I can pick on you for that, but I would never pick on Yumi for that. Right. Sure. You know, what are you, a monster? Yeah. You don't pick on a man's wife. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, it is a cute, cute, sweet song though. I can, I can give it a hearty endorsement. Emily has her little secrets too from even me. She's, she was singing this song the other day that was on some TV show. Mm-hmm. I was like, how do you know this? I've never heard this song. And she said, no, you know, it's a song I know. So what I, song? I don't even know what it was. It was just some kind of bubblegum poppy thing. And, I'll, and that's kind of not her. But you huh. never you never know, you know? Yeah. She I might mean, have learned song... it from her boyfriend. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Todd. Oh, Todd. Todd's into bubblegum pop. He's a jerk. He's got frosted tips on his hair. <laughs> He's got a severe ombre. <laughs> <laughs> so which one are we doing? We're going to do standardized patients. And, right. um, it's funny. The, uh, the thought occurred to me to go through this entire episode without mentioning Seinfeld at all, <laughs> just to make people really angry. Man, we would have gotten so many emails though, but that's kind of like you can't not mention the very famous Seinfeld episode where Kramer and, uh, who's the other guy? Mickey. Oh yeah. I forgot Mickey was one too. Was that his name? Yeah, his, his uh, friend who was a little person. Yeah, and they they were uh, 
I think Mickey got him into it and they yeah. were, they were, and I didn't even know they were called standardized patients. I doubt if they said that on the episode. Right. I don't remember what they called them. Surely they called them something. Well, they have a few names, simulated patients, standardized patients, care actors. Well, they're, those are, some of those are different. They're, they're generally the, under the, the umbrella of say like a simulized or stand, simulated patient. Yeah. But there's slightly, there's little nuances there that, that make the whole thing revoltingly fascinating. Programmed patients. Isn't that what the first guy called it? Yeah, man. If that's not like a brain doctor's name for it, then I <laughs> yeah. don't know what it is. Uh, well, should we start there? Yeah, let's go back to that guy, a doctor named Howard Barrow. He worked out at USC, Go Trojans, and he was teaching back in the early 60s, late 50s, I believe. And apparently at the time, Chuck, they would just teach you everything and then say, okay, you've graduated, you're done, goodbye, like, go practice medicine. Good luck with a live human. Exactly. You've never encountered one throughout your entire training, but... You are a doctor now, so yeah. we we wash our hands of you, right? And so this guy was teaching neurology and realized, like, I think he had a friend who had come to to start, like, observing his graduates in a clinical setting. But, like, after they graduated and were practicing doctors and we were like, whoa, 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 you guys are doing this all wrong. Yeah. Who taught you this? And, like, you did. <laughs> and uh he's like, all right, well, we got to do something different. So that doctor re- figured out that he could sit down and go through, basically observe a doctor doing uh, an entire patient history and exam and everything. Yeah. But each one took like two to three hours. And they're like, there's got to be a better way to do this. Sure. So Barrows was, uh it was his idea and his idea alone, right? From what I understand, I saw, I came across another doctor, a woman, a pediatrician, a woman named, uh, Paula Stillman, uh-huh. who came up with this idea also seemingly independently in the early seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it didn't catch on big time in the eighties. So I think she and Barrow are kind of like the earliest practitioners of this thing. Well, it wasn't a big hit at first. Like people kind of made fun of them. Uh, I know in this one article you found, they, there were newspaper articles, uh, one in the L.A. Herald Examiner that had a headline that said Hollywood invades USC medical school. Right. Uh, and in the San Francisco Chronicle of all places, they said scantily clad models were making life a little more interesting for the USC medical students, right. which is really I mean, I guess it's a sign of the times, but really kind of a crappy way to, you know, they made it sound like it was some titillating sexual thing. Right. Cause you know, they they had these people that are really doing what, you know, what I learned was a super valuable service. Well, yeah, for sure. I think they were just trying to sex it up for the paper. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. For their reading audience. Cause they were like Zodiac killer coming soon. What's that? Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't around yet. So they had to do something. So they were just trying to take something that was actually, yeah, a valuable service and pretty straightforward and. Again, sex it up a little bit. Yeah. But it actually, it, it kept it from catching on for a while, at least at first. It wasn't until I think the mid eighties that Barrow was able to like get it to start to become adopted throughout the, the, um, the medical universe in the United States, at least. Yeah. And you know what? We've done that thing again. 
Yeah, I know. Where we haven't said what it is yet. No. <laughs> you, you, you had to have seen Seinfeld and know how to read between the lines of our conversation. Yeah. So a simulated patient or a standardized patient is, um, sometimes they're an actor. Sometimes they have no acting experience. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, and we'll get to who these people are, but they're generally people looking to make a buck who are, who fit the profile and, uh, of being a, a fake patient to a medical student. So they can get a real practical human to human experience in medical school. Exactly. Because there's a big difference between book learning and real life, right? Yep. And if you're a doctor, a huge, huge part of your, um, your, uh, job, especially, um, non-surgical doctoring is conversing with a, a, a human being, a yeah. patient and and on the one hand, treating them as a human being, not a set of symptoms. That's a big one. But then also, um, getting out of them, what's wrong with them so that you can diagnose them. Yeah. That's, I thought this was all sort of just about bedside manner and like being, you know, cause it's a big part of the job. You know, sure. you want a doctor. If you've ever had a doctor that had a poor bedside manner, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, if you haven't, then you might take it for granted that everyone's like that, but that's not the case. Right. But the second part of that, I didn't really think about, but, um, the director of the standardized patient program at University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, Valerie Fulmer, who they, uh, I don't know if they interviewed her for this or if she was just, they pulled some quotes, but I never really thought about it. She said communication is at the root of proper diagnosis patient safety and patient satisfaction and miscommunication can lead to medical error. So they have to, a big part of the job is drawing out of the patient what the heck is wrong with them because they can examine until the cows come home, but they need words. Right. So like, yeah, a patient who comes into the doctor's office or the ER isn't going to be like, um, I have an abscess on my right kidney that needs to be treated (laughs) or else I'm going to die of sepsis in the next 12 hours. It's my, my, my side hurts. That's what you get. Yeah. So you have to ask more questions and know what questions to ask. So yeah, it's, it's diagnosis, learning how to diagnose from talking to people and drawing info out of them. But that bedside manner, that's not to be overlooked. Like that's a big part of it because, you know, if, if people start to think every doctor I've ever interacted with treated me like I was just a bag of organs and bones. Yeah. Which we are. Couldn't, couldn't <laughs> sure. And couldn't care, but you're not supposed to. To let on that everybody's no, no, no. like this. You know, we to... all have to pretend in yes. this big grand manner, right? Exactly. And it, but it'll keep you from going to the doctor. And, and if you stop going to the doctor, then health problems can can start to accumulate. And it's all the doctor's fault for being a sociopathic jerk. Well, yeah, but you also, you know, in that um, which one were we talking about? Doctors being too empathetic. <laughs> the empathy recently. one. Oh, yeah, okay, there you have it. <laughs> yeah. You didn't want a doctor who fell to pieces. No, you you need to learn <laughs> to walk that fine line between being too clinical and uh too much of an empath to where the patient feels at ease and taken care of, but you feel confident and they're not like breaking down and crying because right. they have to tell you that you may be dying, let's say. Yeah, but the the lady from the University of Pittsburgh who was interviewed in this article points out that there was she she remembered at least one medical student who did break down because of an interaction with a simulated patient or standardized patient. Um, and that 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 that's the point of a simulized or, or simulated or standardized patient is 
so that you can go ahead and break down like that and get it out um, in in a basically a classroom setting so that when you encounter this in the real world, you'll have already gone through that. Yeah. And um, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of it in a bit. But um, if you're wondering if you want to go do this, if you have to like, you know, get a prostate exam, um, you don't have to. But if you're if you're open to that kind of if you're into action, it. <laughs> you can sign up for a more intense. Uh, I, and I imagine those are the ones that pay a little bit better. But you can go in and volunteer for a prostate exam or 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 breast exam or anything that involves something a little more uh, um, invasive. Yeah. But you're not going to get cut or you're not going to get uh, needled or anything like that. They're not going to practice that kind of stuff on you. Right. I was reading the FAQ on the University of Pittsburgh site about their um, simulated patients. And they, they point out that patients, simulated patients will not be given drugs. Yeah. They're not going to inject you with like a cocktail of antipsychotics right. for the You're simulation. Like, hey, this may be, good, be a good way to score. <laughs> right. But it's on you as the simulated patient to, um, to act as if you're, um, going through a psychotic break right then. Yeah. Potentially so that the doctor can learn how to deal with that kind of thing. That's probably one of the more dramatic examples. I think a lot of them are a lot more pedestrian, but that is definitely in the mix as well. Well, even though you're, uh, as we'll see, it's, you sort of, um, it's not scripted. You, you do have to be an improviser of sorts, but you're supposed to stick to kind of, I don't think you're supposed to throw many just curveballs that you think of in the moment. Right. Uh, which is what I would want to do, which is probably, yeah, right. I would not be a good SP. That's what Kramer did. Yeah. He, he, he kind really, of made it into like a real acting gig. Right. Right. And they say that actors, can be good at this, but it's not acting. Like they, they point out that, um, there's no, you're not searching for moments of drama. Right. You're not there to entertain. You're not you're there not for playing, you. You're not playing to the audience. So yeah, it could be helpful to learn, say, um, I don't know, would it be character acting or method acting in this one? Mm, m- probably method acting. So it would be useful to learn some nuts and bolts of, of that, just practice and rehearse that type of acting. But you're not going to like, you're not going to go get your big break or something doing this. That's not the point of it. No, I think I would, uh, <laughs> I would try and fart a lot or something, <laughs> just something very subtle. That'd be your, your trademark. Yeah. Cause uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be in, in the, in the lounge afterward, they'd all be like, did you get the guy that I think he was farting? <laughs> right. Was that on purpose or? That'd be your standardized patient card. It'd say, <laughs> Charles W. Chuck Bryant, ask about my trademark. Parts on command. Uh, all right. That was dumb. So we should take a break. Yeah. So I can get it together. Okay. So, Chuck, let's get down to the nuts and bolts, the nitty-gritty a little bit, right? So okay. I said earlier that all of this kind of falls under the, the umbrella of a standardized or a simulated patient. Um, and then underneath that umbrella, which we've kind of been using interchangeably but really shouldn't, um, is the standardized patient is largely what we're talking about. And I think synonymous with the standardized patient 
and it is uh, the programmed patient that first um, that first term that George Barrow used for it, right? Right. And the reason that it's called standardized or programmed is because, it's like you said, there isn't a script. Like you don't memorize a script and the doctor says this and then you say that. But you do have like a, you are given a specific set of criteria and it can be really detailed as well. And you're expected to stick to that role, that character. You take on a character and your character is sick. Your character has a backstory. There's um, certain things that your character is capable of doing and incapable of doing yeah. because of the medical condition, maybe because of a prior medical history. Um, and then you go in there. And you remain in this character and you do it virtually the same way, as close to the same as possible for student doctor after student doctor after student doctor. Yeah. Usually up to about 10 in a day. And the each student doctor is supposed to get the same experience from you. Yeah. And the reason why they want it that standardized is because they're being graded on this. They're being tested on this. It's it's um the closest thing to scientifically reproducible that something as objective as bedside manner could be made into. That's the point of standardized patients specifically. Yeah, and you've um the case that you've gotten is either uh something that's just made up like, hey, we need somebody that has an, uh, maybe a ruptured appendix or whatever. That's kind of a run of the meal, uh, meal? Run of the breakfast. <laughs> run of the mill situation. Uh, but sometimes it's an actual case, like a real case, um, that they base it on. Like someone has actually experienced this. It's been recorded. Right. And they have this case study and they want the doctor to go through this very specific thing. Uh, and in that case, they, they want to really replicate that right down to like the age, gender and ethnicity of that actual patient that had that actual case to begin with. Right. Exactly. I think George Barrow, the guy who came up with this in the 60s, he based his first um, standardized patient on an actual case that he handled because he knew exactly how it presented, um, exactly what the medical history was. So and it was something that he felt could be reproduced pretty easily again and again. Um, and there's this really interesting essay that was run in The Believer, but I think it made it into a collection um, in the writer's book uh, by a writer named Leslie Jameson. And the name of the essay is The Empathy Exams. And it's about her um, experience as a standardized patient. Oh, wow. And it's really, really interesting just how she's really investigating the character that she's given. Like, I think her... Her main character, she's got more than one, um, but her main one or the one that she seems most attached to, her brother like drowned oh, wow. in a, after tailgating at a football game and then jumping into a river and he drowned years back. And um, she's like still grieving over the loss of her brother and it's led to seizures, but she doesn't, even she, the character doesn't know that these seizures are basically coming out of grief. Right. So it's for the doctors to suss out. And that's just one of uh, at least a couple um, uh, standardized patients that she's played, but it's really interesting. It's a great, great essay. Well, yeah. In the, um, in this article that uh, you dug up, it said that one of the, there are a lot of reasons someone might want to do this, but one of them can certainly be that they had like a family member that died of a certain disease or maybe was misdiagnosed even. Mm -hmm. So they feel like this is like something they can do to kind of help out uh, that kind of research or whatever, you know? 
Right. I, I ran across, though, that one of the pitfalls of um, standardized patients is that the people who do it, they can have a, a hidden agenda sometimes. And yeah. it may be as benign as yeah, my brother was misdiagnosed. And I want to make sure that doesn't happen to anybody else. Or um, it can be some I ran across in this comment section on a biomedical blog about some doctor said that while he was in training, he came across a, a standardized patient who was sure to list all of the herbal medications that she was taking right then. And then she later said that it was because she wanted to make sure that these medical students were made aware of alternative medicine as well. Yeah. So she had like a specific hidden agenda that she wanted to get across to these med students without going to the trouble of going to med school herself and becoming a doctor teacher. Oh, wow. It just kind of came in under the radar basically. And apparently they try to root people like that out because sure. it's not the point of the whole thing, but it's kind of funny how they slip in there sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you know, you're in character unless you're doing, and uh, we'll talk about this later, but that one thing that you found and sent me, it's, that seemed like a little bit of a different process where they might have a really specific goal in mind right? where you'd kind of do almost like play acting back and forth with the student doctor. But generally, uh, they're trying to diagnose you. So you walk in the room and you're in character. So if you've got kidney pain or a bad back or a limp or whatever, then you don't walk in and say, all right, let's get started and then go, oh, like they try to make it as real as possible. You walk in there in character with, you know, holding your side or, <laughs> or whatever your ailment is. Right. You don't, you know run your face over or your hand over your face and go from <laughs> smiling to like frowning to get in character. No, you don't do that. No. And apparently I've seen that if a uh, standardized patient's really good, they'll be basically indistinguishable from some of the patients that the, the doctor will eventually run into in their clinical practice. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough, man. Cause you have to, I mean, if you're not an actor, you might be, have a talent you didn't know you had if you're good at this, because you have to memorize and internalize and study all this stuff because you have to be just as real as someone who is experiencing something. And like, that's, that's the best, like you, you would be the best actor if you literally become that person that you're playing. And that's kind of what you have to do for this. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like these people, if they aren't actors, they might want to look into it. Sure. If they're good at it. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So acting is not a, being an actor is not a prerequisite for this, right? No. Um, but you could be an actor and be good at it. You could be an actor and become very quickly frustrated by the whole thing because it's not acting necessarily. It's a very specific type of acting, right? Yeah. It's literally medical acting, but it, just that's not enough. You need to apparently be ceaselessly upbeat, endlessly upbeat. And the reason why is because you're going through this thing say up to 10 times in a row. And these things last from what I saw about 45 minutes. Oh, sure. Right? So you're doing this for 45 minutes. Well, plus 10... they make you wait a half an hour to an hour in the, in the waiting room beforehand. Too. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Filling out forms. Yeah. Cause you got to get angry before you go in there. Some guys like coughing a lung up next to you. And it's like, <laughs> Oh, I'm not contagious. Um, it drives me crazy when people are like, I'm not contagious. It's like, you don't know. You have no idea whether you're contagious or not. <laughs> right. Um, but so you have to do this maybe 10 times in a row. It's about 45 minutes per from what I saw. And that, that 10th one needs to be as great a performance as that first one, because 
there, those are two different medical students. There's 10 different medical students seeing you and each one needs to get your best because as far as they're concerned, this is their training. They, they're not looking at your day, you know, like, Oh, I'm one of 10. It's, this is my, this is my big, my big test or my big training. Yeah. So you need to give each one your, your, your all. Sure. And in that sense, you have to have a lot of energy, a lot of spunk. Yeah. A lot of positivity. Um, and then you also have to be very comfortable dealing with medical professionals, which uh, is not necessarily always the easiest bunch to deal with from what I understand. Well, no, I mean, if you have a phobia of, of doctors, then this is not the gig for you. Sure. And I think if you are, um, easily crushed by pushy, um, arrogant people, it might not be the best gig for you either. Why is that? Well, doctors can be tad arrogant sometimes. Oh. I mean, we all saw malice. <laughs> I don't think I saw that. Yeah, you did. When Alec Baldwin is like, do I have a God complex? I don't have a God complex. I am God. <laughs> oh, I just thought that was Alec Baldwin. Like on the street. <laughs> right. <It> probably was. <laughs> he tweeted it, right? Uh, <laughs> no, I never did see that actually. I remember the movie though. Um, yeah, it was a good eighties movie, yeah. late eighties movie. But, but yeah, so you can't just be like a wilting flower when a med no. student gets all mad or pushy or whatever. And you also have to be, the type who could conceivably take charge and can take control if, if a med student is doing that and, um, kind of maybe guide them back a little bit toward where they should be, or at the very least being willing to give them feedback to their face about how they just royally screwed this whole thing up because they're over aggressive or because they were, um, under assertive. Who knows? I, I, you, I think you run into all of that stuff and you have to be prepared to do this. So, that brings up another point too. You have to have a really good memory. Oh yeah. Because it, depending on who you ask, a lot of the, um, simulated patients will also be required to give feedback. Yeah. Some of them, I got the impression it have something to do with like the scoring or grading process as well. Probably. So you have to be in character. So you have to have your characters, history, symptoms, everything memorized. You have to stay in character. You have to um, respond to the doctor's questioning, and then you have to um, be paying attention to all the stuff the doctor should be asking, all the stuff the doctor is failing to ask, and um, the doctor's just behavior in general so that you can give accurate feedback afterward. And then you have to do it 10 times in a row in a day. Yeah, and this this serves a very specific need um, beyond the obvious that uh, – well, there's a few things, and, and and they're all somewhat obvious, but it bears going over. Um, in experience of of medical students, you don't want them practicing on a real sick person because they, if they mess up, that's not good. Right. So having a, a almost like a live uh, recessa Annie on your hands is good. Right, a live recessa Annie. My mom used to bring those home. She used to teach CPR. What would you do with them? Uh, I tried to teach and then I learned to kiss. Uh, I knew something weird went on. <laughs> I tried to learn CPR here. There, I think I've learned it like four or five times in my life. I just keep keep forgetting it. So the one thing I do remember is you want to do it to the um, you want to press the uh, um, what is it called where you do <laughs> where you give chest compressions to the beat of staying alive. Oh ironically. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then apparently, um. You don't give a uh, breathing aid, like you don't pinch their nose and breathe into their mouth. 
for a couple of reasons. One, you're exhaling carbon dioxide directly into their lungs, so that's stupid. And then two, they don't really have a way to expel it. So now they apparently, from what I understand, they just recommend chest compressions until um, paramedics arrive. Is that the latest accurate? I don't know. I should probably look it up before we publish this. Yeah, we should say, too, that we're not trained medical professionals. No, we're not even trained medical actors. And you are now taking life-saving advice from a guy who learned to kiss from a lifeless uh, synthetic. <laughs> she wasn't lifeless when I was kissing her. <laughs> she went, ooga. <laughs> right. Her little curly wig spun on her head. Uh all right. So the first thing is inexperience. You don't want a, a medical student to be messing up on real people. Um, number two is availability. Uh, they have to teach, they have to run the gamut of medical issues and you just can't count on having real, you know, being able to source real patients with that specific problem. So it's really easy just to teach someone to act like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, a real patient, uh, isn't supposed to provide feedback, constructive feedback for their doctor. I suppose they could. Yeah. Even if they could, though, they're not necessarily like they're going to be like, again, my kidneys abscess them in a lot of pain. Right. I don't really care about your medical career. Just fix me. Yeah. You can you call scene at the end <laughs> of this thing and then they go, all right, now let's like you said, let's talk about it. Uh, I'm really not in pain. So I'm fine to have this conversation. Sure. Whereas a patient would be like, I'm, I got to go urinate blood real quick. I'll be right back. <laughs> then I'll give you feedback, doctor. Correct. So that's a standardized patient, right? Yes. But there's, there's plenty of other kinds. Let's take a, um, let's take a break and then we'll come back and talk about those. Okay. One thing before we uh, move on to that, I think we mentioned yet, is that um, speaking of Recessa Annie, they have these really expensive surgical dummies now. They think they actually they call them robots, uh, and this is how surgeons practice now. Um, Seventy-five grand to a hundred grand, and I looked them up. These things are amazing and lifelike. Uh, they breathe and have pulses, and some of them bleed. They know how to love. Some of them give birth. Simulated birth, obviously. Sure. But uh, I kind of did wonder, like, how do surgeons even practice these days? I know they probably cut on uh, cadavers cadavers in in med school, but uh, that you can only get so far. Well, we've come a long way from the days where med students were forced to rob graves. Yeah. Now we've got. $100,000 $100,000 Cadillacs of robots ready for surgery. Yeah, I mean, they look like, I mean, some of them don't have, if they don't need it, they don't have legs and arms, but they cover that up just to make it a little more realistic. Sure. But they have guts, and this one dude I saw had, like, kind of a 5 o'clock shadow beard. Um, It was creepy and awesome that they have this stuff that's so lifelike. Oh, man. So I was on Twitter the other day. Shout out Twitter. <laughs> um, and Atlas Obscura had this, um, tweet where they were, they had a picture of this. It was a decapitated serial killer whose head was pickled in a jar yeah. from, I think a teaching hospital in, I believe Portugal, possibly Spain. I think it was Portugal. It was Portugal's like first serial killer. And, um, they had his head pickled and it was from 1840. 
when he was executed. Wow. And man, it looks like he was from the seventies, maybe. Like it's just so, I mean, lifelike still. Yeah. Just completely undegraded and just creepy. And his eyes are wide open, just kind of like his mouth's a little slack, but he looks like he could be thinking about something rather than being headless. Well, that's where the old phrase comes from. A pickled head never loses its looks. <laughs> right. There's a t-shirt. Uh, all right. So if you're a recruiter, uh, let's say at the University of Pittsburgh, um, and you're trying to find these people and source them, uh, you're going to be very picky, um, because it's a, it's a big deal. It's a, it's not like a fly by night job. Like this is something that medical students take very seriously. Uh, you have to be intuitive. Um, like you said, you had to weed through people that you might think have some other sort of weird motive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you know, you're going to have to weed through a lot of people because, you know, this is also the kind of thing where you can make 20 to $40 an hour. So, um, you also want to, I mean, obviously people want to get paid, but their motives have to be more than just money. I think. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, it's tricky too, because you, you, um, expect, you know, a high caliber of commitment and, and, um, skill from your, your, your teachers or your special or standardized patients, right? Yeah. And they're very highly trained and there's a lot of like, um, ongoing education that happens. Um, but at the same time, yeah, you're paid handsomely if you look at it per hour, but if you look at it over the course of a, a month, even you're probably not even going to be able to make rent off of this. No, it's, it's a part-time gig if, if that. Yeah. But, um, you know, you have to be a good listener as well as, all the things we mentioned like memorization and be a decent actor. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to take direction. Well, you have to be flexible if they change something up on you. Um, like if it says in here, if the simulation isn't achieving the desired goal, they, you know, they may come in between sessions and say, Hey, listen, uh, I think we had the wrong approach here. So can you, can you do it this way? <laughs> right. Act better. I think that was Christopher Walken said right. <laughs> that was the only direction there was really do it better. Yeah. What? I love that guy. Yeah. Don't we all? So, um, and you know, it, it's, it's probably something you get into if you have a desire to help people, if you just have a zeal for interesting jobs, you know? Yeah. Maybe if you have an interest in medicine or psychology or being an educator, like you're, you're kind of, you are an educator in some ways. And if, in fact, I think some of them call them, uh, educators, like medical educators. Yeah. There's a, um, national association, a national group called the Association of Standardized Patient Educators. Yeah. Um, and I think they have like ongoing, uh, education and core curriculum. And, um, it's, it's pretty interesting to see just how, how much training you can get in this. And yeah. I imagine if you're really good and really highly trained, you, you, you're not going to be some part-time, you know, adjunct employee of a, a local medical school. You could conceivably go around the country or possibly the world, especially if you have a specialty. Sure. You know, uh, one of the downsides of this is that, uh, and this is kind of a shame, but there, there is no like controlled randomized trial that can actually prove the effectiveness, but, by all accounts across the board, everyone says this is super important and highly, highly effective as right. for students. Yeah. 
They just can't prove it. Yeah. That drives them crazy. <laughs> Probably so. So you've got, you've got standardized patients. One of the other ones you touched on that's worth diving into a little more are care actors, right? Yeah. These are, they fall under that same umbrella of a simulated patient, but these guys are, um, whereas like a, a standardized patient is really going to help a, uh, you know, second or third year medical, um, student who has no clinical experience whatsoever yeah. and is learning the, the very basics of like physical exams or bedside manner and all that stuff. A care actor is, is much more useful for somebody who's already in practice and has a lot of experience, but just wants to get better at it. Sure. Right. So like a, a, a care actor will basically be there to ad lib a little bit based on whatever the, the doctor wants to work on. Say the doctor wants to work on empathy. Right. Rather than go through the whole history and the whole patient encounter from beginning to end, they're going to focus on that one part of the patient and patient doctor interaction. And they're going to do it over and over again. There's an ability rather than having to start at the beginning and finish at the end. You can stop and try something over again if you didn't like it or you right. want to repeat it. Um, like I said, there's a lot of ad libbing and, um, the, the doctor can say, okay, I want to, we're going to do a patient who has, um, psychosis and is in the midst of a psychotic break. And it's a, on a scale of one to 10, it's an 11. And um, I need to be empathetic. So let's try it. And then they're, they're going to go from there and they can just kind of switch it up as need be. Yeah. And I think this is really cool because the doctor can get as specific as they want. They can say like, you know what? I feel like I have a pretty good bedside manner, but I have a really hard time dealing with patients when they get angry at me. Um, so they'll say, all right, let's, let's dial up an exercise. Yeah. They're like, Oh, you want some anger? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You asked for it. And they'll bring someone in there. Or like you said, if someone was, uh, if a doctor was like, Hey, I do pretty well, even with, um, patients who have, uh, like a psychotic episode, but maybe not right in the middle of a psychotic episode. <laughs> I've had some real trouble there. So they, Again, they come in there and like you said, this is different. They're not surprised on what they're going to get. This is just a very specific training method. Yeah. Or the doctor's like, I, I, I'm fine with kids unless they turn their eyelids inside out. <laughs> and then I can't, I just completely lose it. So did you ever do that? that? No, no, I wasn't one of those either. I can roll my tongue perfectly and wiggle my ears. Yeah. I can do those things too. I can't turn my tongue into like a, a clover or a club though. You know that kids who could do that. Yeah, I can do that. I can't do that. I didn't, know, I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. Nice. I hadn't pulled that one out in a while though. No, you got to, <laughs> but the eyelids thing, that's just, there's no reason you do that unless you're, you know, you're trying not going, to impress recessa Annie. <laughs> you're not going anywhere in life. If you're going up to the girls in class with your eyelids turned inside out, there's <laughs> no way to woo a girl. No. Young guys, young boys, if you're listening to this, don't, 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 don't do that. You know what you do? Be nice to girls and listen to them and trust me on that. I'm, I'm still learning that one. Right. Yeah, nice aren't part. we all <laughs> as we grow? No, I'm always nice, but I could always work on the listening. Sure, man. Uh, boy, that, man, that got was oddly some, personal. That was good advice, Chuck. Hey, thanks. Nice of you. You know, if you start out like a, if you start a fifth or sixth grade boy out on the right track like that. Yeah. They're going to be good humans. 
I feel like girls are inherently good. Sure. You don't see girls running around with their eyelids turned inside out. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Not even Wonder Woman would do that. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Uh, what else? Uh, so you got standardized patients, care actors, and then there's, um, I ran across another one called unannounced standardized patients. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They, they're basically, you know what a secret shopper is? Yes. They are highly trained standardized patients who are secret shoppers at hospitals and doctor's offices and stuff like that to go in from beginning to end to rate the experience from the patient's eyes. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's scary. Yeah. Yeah. But it's cool though that any hospital would do this because, you know, it, it's, it shows a, um, a bit of a dedication to, to customer service. Right? Yeah. For sure. Which I think that people forget that, you know, when you go in for medical care, you're the customer. You should be treated well. Like we demand to be treated well from cable providers, from car dealers, from grocery stores, from yeah. everybody. But we just go into a hospital. Like complete supplicants, like please don't murder me. Yeah, you know, and and if if you demand to be treated like a a, a good a customer, well, then I will, well then they do kill you. <laughs> it's a conundrum. <laughs> They're like, oh, I guess somebody shouldn't have mouthed off, and then the pillow goes over <laughs> the face. Uh, you sent that one cool article. Um. Of the, the doctor, uh, what was he, what did he call himself? The, uh, Muda? The, the mm-hmm. guy who basically has recruited medical professionals that are self, uh, not actors, but you know. Well, they're, they're medical actors. That dude wasn't even a doctor. He was just a. Oh, I a, thought he was a doctor. No, he was a freelance, um, like teaching actor. Uh, or, or, um, teaching patient, right? And he got really good at it and he specialized, um, in male urogenital exams, right? So <laughs> prostate exam, yeah. testicular exam. And this guy would travel the country, um, doing this. And he set up shop actually in Atlanta, a company called, um, Clinical Skills USA, right? Yeah. And recruited other people. And these people are, they just go around the country allowing medical students to give them rectal exams, breast exams, um, vaginal exams, cervical exams, um, so that they can, these students can practice on a live person, but more than just a live person, because in this article, this article is by, um, Elizabeth Coles and I think vocative. Yeah. Called, these medical models use their own bodies as teaching tools. It's really great. But she makes mention that apparently medical schools to train um, med students on gynecological exams back in the day, they would hire prostitutes. Did not know that. I didn't know that either. I thought these people, though, had medical background because they're training them as well, aren't they? Yes. Like a little to the left, a little to the right. Right. There it is. Yes. So these people are trained in the exam. They're not medical professionals. Um, one's a, one, one that they interview is a, a real estate agent or no, an insurance agent. One guy's retired from that GM plant, which I suspect probably the one in Doraville. Yeah. Um, and no, they're just, they, they know what the exam is supposed to be like. And then they've subjected themselves to the exam so many times that they, can that get they know the right way to do it so well yeah. that they can teach med students how to do it. But this is still under the supervision 
of trained professionals. Right. I have the impression that like the, the, the med school teacher who brings these people in says, listen to what this person has to say. They're the trained professionals. All right. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So this one guy who's, um, a male urogenic genital teaching associate that they interview, um, Mike Manning. He said that he, he estimates he's had somewhere around 4,000 prostate exams. Oh man. In nine years. Wow. So yes, that guy probably knows more about how to yeah, yeah. give a prostate exam than anybody in the world. Well, I saw the one picture, um, of the guy like, you know, bent over the table, mm-hmm. uh, and it's from, you know, his front. And then the, the, uh, the doctor, student doctor behind him, and he's kind of looking back like, you know, that's, that's it. That's correct. Yeah. I think that was the guy. I think that was Mike Manning or Mark Manning. Yeah. What a, isn't it uh, interesting? Yeah. I mean, what a, I don't want to call it weird, but what a, just what a fascinating thing to, to have a knack for and right. not, and not mind and just be like, yeah, 4,000 times. Let's do it. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty interesting that these, uh, the people who all work for him too, um, are, are, they've kind of become a bit of a family. I, know, I love that. They like go to bars and go to dinner and hang out. Yeah, they do. Um, one of the, one of them is, uh, she's actually, she would be considered a gynecological teaching associate, a GTA rather than a MUTA. Yeah. Um, her name is Katie Patterson, but like she travels the country teaching med students how to correctly insert a speculum. Yeah. Um, I mean like these people are literally donating their body to science, but while they're still alive. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. And yeah, they're getting paid, but I mean, they're not getting paid enormous amounts of money. They're getting paid something between 35 and 50 bucks per student per day. So say you have 10, 10 students, you make 500 bucks in a day. It's not bad at all. Sure. But you're only working 30 days out of, out of the year, maybe. Maybe fifty. Yeah, doesn't add up to much. So the, clearly, these people are driven by by a much more um, benevolent thing than than money. Bless their hearts. Yeah, you know. Yeah. You got anything else? I got nothing else. This one turned out better than I thought, Chuck. Yeah, I think if you um, maybe if you're out there and you, all this sounds like, hey, I, I could probably do that and have a desire to help people learn, and I don't mind being, you know poked and prodded and I yeah, want to make yeah. a few bucks, look into it. We should reiterate that the, the people who are the male urogenital teaching associates and the ladies who are the gynecological teaching associates, they're, they're very specific. And yes, you could say, uh, I want to sign up for rectal exams and they'd say, come on in. We need rectal exam volunteers bad. Right. But um, just becoming a simulated patient of some sort you could say, I never want to do rectal exams. Yeah, I just want sure. to do, you know, bedside man or something like that. And they would, they would probably just stick to that, you know? Yeah. They're not going to force you to ever do anything that you're not comfortable with. No. And again, regretfully, they don't give you any drugs. <laughs> but if you do want that kind of thing, yeah. If you are interested, check out your local med school. They probably have some sort of program or again, go to the association of standardized patient educators. Pretty neat. Yeah, and if you're an actor, beats waiting tables. Yeah. And in the meantime, you can uh, type standardized patients into the search bar at howstuffworks.com. 
And since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, South African Canadian. All right. Does that pique your interest? Yeah, I'll bet I know what this one's about. <laughs> hey, guys, never really had a reason to get into co- contact into now since you announced your tour up to Canada, and that fired my cylinders into action. I've listened to you guys for a couple of years, probably from early 2015. 2015? 2015. 2015's <laughs> been listening forever. Uh, I was then living in South Africa. At 19, fresh out of high school, I made the daring decision to leave my family and friends to try and make something of myself. I have Canadian citizenship as well due to my father being born in Toronto. Or Toronto. Toronto. So I landed there in Toronto early last year and made my way a little east and then a lot west uh, to Vancouver, where I will be seeing you in September of this year. Awesome. Uh, the point is, being away from family and friends is brutal. At a nine-hour time difference, and brutal turns to lethal. I often feel lonely or anxious uh, of the future, and when this happens, stuff you should know in the three of you lovely people Make it not seem so bad as it feels like there's someone right here with me chatting casually about some neato topic. That is very sweet. It is. So I just want to say thank you for making this move tolerable when it feels uh, sometimes uh, not so great. Who's that? Uh, that is Kaya H. And I don't know if K-E-Y-A is... Kaya, Kaya? Kaya. Kaya. Yeah, I don't know how Kaya identifies on the gender spectrum. Well, who cares? Right? That's right. K-H. The H stands for how are you. I just want to use the right pronoun. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So what's that one? Uh, is it cis? Is uh, cisgendered? Like uh, gender neutral? I'm not sure. How about they? <laughs> sure. I think they is like making a big a big push right now. Well, a nice email from they. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Kaya. That's pretty awesome. Congratulations for striking out on your own. It's pretty amazing. And thanks for coming to our show in Vancouver. And even more than that, thanks for giving us a reason to plug our show in Vancouver and the rest of our tour where people can get tickets at SYSKLive.com. And right. All right. Well, if you want to get in touch with us like Kaya did, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 